Publisher Podcast, Episode 49. Well, hey, hey, everybody. This is a fun interview talking about all kinds of things for the Francophiles in the group and anyone who is interested in French and European history. You're going to love this interview. But we also talk about so many key things about the publishing process for indie authors and um, writing books. And for those of you who have spent your lifetime or what feels like a lifetime working on a book, you'll appreciate Daniel's story. Um, We also talk about editorial reviews, and I'd like to just give a plug for our upcoming workshop about editorial reviews, why they are important, how you get them, what they are, all those types of things. So please make sure you head on over to womeninpublishingsummit.com forward slash events if you can join us in the live workshop. That's awesome. Otherwise, it will be available on demand after the fact. All right, let's get into this one. Every once in a while, you come across one of those really intriguing interesting projects that just catch your attention. So I met Daniel Fallon because he was referred to me by another industry expert and had some questions about the publishing process. So we had a consulting call. We talked through some things. I gave him some advice and direction and off he went. But while we were having that call, he told me all about the premise of his book. And I was just so intrigued. I told him I had to have him on this podcast episode. So we are running this a week before his launch. His book officially launches on October 5th, but it is available on pre-order and you'll hear all about it. So I'm a Francophile. Anybody who knows me knows that I love everything about France. And then I'm also a history buff. So I just love this incredible story of real events that happened in his family and how he went to set about on this big journey to figure out if he could put together the pieces of this family mystery that involves a really famous French person in literary, a very famous literary figure in French. So in France, goodness gracious. So I'm so excited about this topic. I can't even speak correctly. At any rate, The interview is not only about his process to come up with all the pieces of the puzzle to put together this book, but we also talk a lot about his process in creating the book, in looking for editorial reviewers, and making sure that the book was designed beautifully, and all the things. So while I am so excited about the topic of his book, I know you're going to find some really interesting snippets of information that help you in your author journey as well. So enjoy the show. Welcome to the Publish Her Podcast, a place where you can come to get inspiration, motivation, help, encouragement, and support in your journey to write, publish, and sell your book. Hosted by Alexa Bigwarf. Welcome to another episode of the Publish Her Podcast. I love to interview authors on this podcast because even though we do a lot of resources, we do a lot of education, we do a lot of um, other things for you to be able to dig into on your writing, publishing, and selling journey, I think one of the most important things you can do is hear from other authors who have slayed this beast on their own and um, and, and what their journey has been like. And um, I, today I'm bringing you Daniel Fallon and I'll tell you all about him in a second, but 
it was interesting how we connected an author that I've worked with in the past, uh, referred him to me, we had a conversation. And I was just so generally excited about the topic of his book that I invited him to come share with us all about this. So Daniel Fallon holds a BA in psychology from Antioch College and an MA and PhD in experimental psychology from the University of Virginia. He is Professor Emeritus, that's pronounced correctly, right? (laughs) Of psychology and Professor Emeritus of public policy at the University of Maryland at College Park, where he also served as academic vice president and provost, a former advisor and evaluator for the German government on higher education initiatives. He was elected to the board of trustees of two German universities. He concluded his professional career directing grant making in education as a chair of the education division at Carnegie Corporation of New York. And his book has nothing to do with any of these topics before I continue (laughs) on. Uh, Fallon has published widely on learning, motivation, education reform, and contemporary cultural issues. He is the author of The German University, A Heroic Ideal in Conflict with the Modern World, which was awarded the Eugene M. Caden Prize for Excellence in Humanities. Love's Legacy, his latest work, reflects his decades-long exploration of French literary and cultural history. Born in Cartagena, Colombia. I did that right, right? Or is Cartagena. It Car- Cartagena. You corrected me before that too. And there we go. Cartagena, Colombia. I speak French, not Spanish. So there we go. Um, where his father headed the Colombian Navy. Fallon came to the United States when his with his parents at age two. His mother was a native of New Orleans. He currently lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So in addition to all these really interesting things, you write this book that really has nothing to do with all those things that we just covered called Love's Legacy, Viscount Chateaubriand and the Irish Girl. So tell us about this book and where it came from. Well, um, it is, it's partly due to a, uh, an oral history passed down through my family for five generations about um, a girl Good, good stories uh, always start with a girl. <laughs> and uh, this girl in the oral history was, we don't know exactly her age, but probably between 12 and 15 years old. And unusual for her time and place, which was London in the 1790s, uh, she went to school. Hmm. And uh, she apparently was at a pretty good school. And there was a park across the street, and she would sometimes uh, take uh, her lunch hour uh, during that time going across the street to the park, and she had usually some sandwich or something that she took with her. And uh, there she saw, or yeah, she saw at a distance and then introduced herself to uh, a gentleman, or so she assumed from his bearing, but he was obviously down on his luck because his uh, eyes were sunken, his uh, cheeks were gaunt, uh, his clothes were tattered, and uh, his fingers seemed to tremble a bit. Uh, And so she offered him some of her lunch and being a gentleman, he politely refused, but then she insisted and ultimately he succumbed and he took some of this food. And um, so the next day she came back bearing lunch for two. This went on for a couple of days. Now we're talking about 1793, roughly, in London. And uh, it turns out there are a lot of aristocratic Frenchmen 
who are wandering around London destitute. Mm. And this particular Frenchman was on death's doorstep. He had already been diagnosed as having a lung condition that he that uh, the physician did not expect him to survive. Mm. And he was uh, he'd gone for a very long period of time without eating or drinking. And so she ultimately her name in our oral history being passed down from generation to generation was Mary O'Neill. And she went back to her family and it's not clear in the oral history, it's never a mother and father, but always an aunt and uncle with whom she's living. And uh, she says, you know, I've met this guy in a park and, um, and he really needs a place to stay. And we have this attic that we keep uh, for Irish workers coming over looking for work and there's nobody in it right now. So I thought it might be reasonable to have him come and stay in this attic. <laughs> And uh, they were freaked out because nobody was supposed to know about the attic. And, and um, ultimately they agreed. And the Frenchman came and he recovered there and got healthy and began his career as a writer. Now he had already begun various drafts, but uh, he really, his professional work as a writer was begun in that room where he recovered his health and uh, stepped away from death's doorstep. Now that's an oral history, that much of it. Uh, the oral history goes on to say that, uh, that he then left and did something else and, uh, and the girl blossomed into the most beautiful girl in London. They always do in these stories. Of course. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, suddenly this uh, Irishman comes along whose name is Patrick Fallon. And he sweeps her off her feet and uh, she marries him and they produce a child uh, whom they named Thomas. And just at this time, we're now up to about 1800, the Frenchman reappears. And uh, he is smitten by how beautiful she has become and by the baby that she's holding in her arms. And he says to her that he couldn't, he thought that things were calming down enough in France that he could return, but he did not want to go back without thanking her for having rescued him in his hour of need. And so uh, he said, now to thank you for this, let me assume the full responsibility for the education of this child. And then he returned to France. His publications became very successful. He himself became a very successful person, diplomat and writer. Uh, his name is François René de Chateaubriand, and he is regarded as the founder of French romantic literature. Uh, virtually every writer coming after him praises him and gives him uh, credit for having set them, set their goals in a certain way that produced a unique French aesthetic. Hmm. And he also was a diplomat and an adventurer and did all kinds of interesting things. And sure enough, when the boy was uh, about uh, 17 years old and having finished his primary school, he was uh, sent to Chateaubriand and Chateaubriand paid for his, all of his college education at probably one of the very best places in all of Europe to be educated, the Collège Royal L'Amiens in Amiens, France. 
And what is interesting partly about this is that it turns out that at that time, which was 1817 to 1818, Chateaubriand was in dire financial straits. Hmm. He had been uh, appointed as a counselor to the king and then he got in trouble with the king and the king sacked him. And he thought the king would get over the hissy fit and the king didn't. And so he was without income and he ultimately stopped payment on all of his debts. He essentially, there was no formal thing as bankruptcy in those days, but he essentially declared bankruptcy. The only thing he paid was the tuition and fees for this boy. Wow. So there's something special going on here. <laughs> so anyway, there's that. And then in 1989, uh, after my father died, I uh, inherited his papers. And among those papers <clears throat> was a letter from Chateaubriand to the boy Thomas at the Collège Royal. And it's dated June 19th, 1817. And it, uh, it is addressed to Monsieur Thomas Fallon. Élève au Collège Royal d'Amiens, and it opens up, mon petit ami, my little friend, <laughs> and it says, I'm sending you a package that includes clothing for you to make a pair of shorts, culottes, and a pair of, and a quilt, some quilted material for a vest, and some other materials, and I, uh, you'll have to take these to a tailor to have them fitted to your size, and so I've uh, sent money to the headmaster to pay for these things, <laughs> and he knows about that. Uh, please continue with your studies and count always on my friendship. And it's signed by Chateaubriand. Wow. So in this letter was by now 200 years old and, <laughs> and had begun to crumble into little pieces. And so I had to take it to a document specialist and have it completely reassembled. And uh, then there was another letter, which was from Chateaubriand's secretary, a man named Hyacinthe Piloroche. And it says, I'm writing to you to grant you the permission that you requested from the Viscount to spend your vacation days uh, with your school chums. Well, so I've done all of this stuff. And, and I wonder about this, you know, because here I've got this oral history, which is very rich. And then these letters turn up which give me, you know, physical proof that there was actually something happening. Mm -hmm. Then I realize when I get into trying to figure out who Chateaubriand was, that this is a guy who is most famous for having written his autobiography. And this is 42 volumes. And he specified that it not be published until after his death. Mm. And he gave it the uh, sort of uh, very uh, alluring title of Memoirs from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> so he died in 1848, and it was uh, serially published in a newspaper beginning in 1850. And it had this huge explosive impact on French literature after that. Uh -huh. Well, now here's a guy who obviously had a very significant relationship to this woman and to the son that she produced. Uh, and he's now writing his autobiography, knowing that it's gonna occur after he dies. So he's got nothing to hide. 
And he includes all sorts of things in there, <laughs> including information about at least 15 or 16 women with whom he had affairs. <laughs> uh, and there's no mention of her in this. Interesting. And no mention of Thomas. <laughs> now, I happen to know that these are really significant people. Yeah. So what's going on? <laughs> so you asked me a simple question. I'm sorry to have taken so long to answer it. No, it's such a fascinating story. <laughs> yeah. So there's the story. And uh, so I had to sort of try to figure out, now these people have been gone for 200 years. You know, so right. the question is, how do, you, how do you begin to sort of pick this story up and get something out of it? So... Um, you know, I started in on doing the research uh, in around 1990. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say it took me 30 years. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, that that's that's actually leads into another question that I wanted to ask, because, I mean, you graciously sent me a copy of this book, by the way, it is gorgeous from the cover to just the way the book is designed and everything. It's a really beautiful book, but it's so interesting because you know, it's kind of a blend of investigative journalism with memoir, with intrigue, with this wonderful love story, with, you know, trying to figure out what happened, the background of, of your family history and all of these things. And I, and I was going to ask you how long it took, because I mean, just the research alone of trying to track down these people just to read his journals and all of those types of things, um, which I'm sure were written in French, but I believe you said you found some English translations, but some of them you had to have translated, I'm sure. Or is, has everything been translated? Well, no, but, but much of it has. And you can track down English translations and they, they vary. Uh, I did uh, consult a number of French scholars for help with certain mm -hmm. parts of it. And, uh, and although I'm not a fluent French speaker, you know, I have a, enough familiarity with the French language to be able to decode what's going on in the mm -hmm. written language. So... I was able to, to work with what he had written. Uh, so there are letters from him to others, and <clears throat> some of those have been preserved in, and put into context by other scholars. So I looked at some of those. Uh, but most of it is really just uh, what he's willing to tell us about his life. Yeah. yeah. And here he hid something which was extremely important in his life. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I... It turns out that um, the story that I have, the oral history, of course, was unknown to anybody in the world of Chateaubriand scholarship. Nobody else knew about that. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, um, uh, after um, he, Chateaubriand was long dead, one of the Chateaubriand scholars, a man named Maurice Levaillon, discovered in the early 20th century, around 1915, a packet of letters that Chateaubriand had written to his banker in Paris. <laughs> Normally he talked to his banker face to face, but when he was out of town, he would write him and say, do this and do that. And among these letters is one that is uh, written exactly between the two letters that I have in my possession between <laughs> June and August of 1817 is a, a letter from July of 1817, from Chateaubriand to his banker, a man named Lemoyne, in Paris. And among the things that he says there is, 
by the way, have you received the receipt for the payment of the tuition for the boy Fallon at the school in Amiens? If not, get it for me right away. Wow. So the Chateaubriand scholar seeing this was uh, shocked and amazed because he knew that in that time, Chateaubriand was bankrupt. <laughs> What's he doing paying tuition for a boy in a school? What's that all about? And so he races off to the school. In the meantime, of course, I had written to the school and to someone called an archivist in Amiens for information. And they were trying to get it for me, but they, they wrote back and said, we're sorry to tell you that during the, the German invasion of 1940, all of the records of the school were destroyed. Mm. Oh, that's but Vaillant, this scholar, was looking at this in 1920. Mm -hmm. And so he made a beeline to Anil and he discovered a record for a student named Fallon Thomas, born in London. Well, you know, this Chateaubriand, there's a huge Chateaubriand community. And in fact, there's something in France called the Chateaubriand Society, which is a mm -hmm. big deal and has an annual publication and, and headquarters in Chateaubriand's family home in the Valley of the Wolves outside of Paris. And, um, and these people always wanted their hero to have had a son. Hmm. So they all went gaga over this because they knew that this boy had been born in London just at the time that Chateaubriand was there. And that now 17 years later, he is at a time of personal distress and personal bankruptcy. He's making enormous sacrifices to ensure that this boy gets a wonderful education. And he's not telling anybody about it. Right. He's keeping it a great big fat secret. So what, what is going on here? So that's enough to get you started. Well, it's, it's such a fascinating story. And when we talked before, you told me a few other details that I'm not going to share with the audience because I want them to read the book and, and find out what all was going on. But the research in itself must have just been a bear trying to track down all of this stuff, read all the documentation. And I wanted to... Um, I wanted before you answer a little bit more about maybe a little more details on some of the research that you did. I wanted to read a little quick. I don't normally read pieces from from people's books, but I'm, I want to read this one. Chapter five, arriving at a finish line. Conundrums clarify. If my father had passed me a baton in a marathon moving from one generation to the next, I was determined to be the last to hold it, to, to carry it across the finish line. My scholarly instincts flashed caution. Even though I had assembled more facts than I had imagined possible, and I had exercised sound logic and drawing conclusions about them, I knew there would be likely there would likely be lingering ambiguity. Even so, I could not ignore the obligation I felt to make sense of what the past was telling me. To my surprise, a focused search of the past had yielded treasures showing that an earnest quest can indeed transport us into the lives from a time long ago. The work is never fully done, however, because fresh lines of inquiry inevitably arise 
hovering as a tantalizing fruit. I was sure that telling records buried under the weight of time and history could eventually still be found. I was less certain though, that any future discoveries would disrupt the trajectory of the story that was already taking shape, emerging from the dust cloud of a past lived conse consequentially by those who dared, loved, and suffered in the same ways as people of every other time and place. So first of all, the writing in this book is absolutely fantastic. But you know, you talk about digging into and finding these things and how it changes what we know and what we thought and what we had and and what was that research process like for you? Well, it was tantalizing and, <laughs> uh, and uh, difficult because you know it doesn't come all at once. Mm -hmm. You know, you get one little piece and then maybe four or five years later, you get some other little piece. And then maybe if you're lucky, you, you stumbled across something really extraordinary, as I did in, in one case where I realized that, that there were no school records. Mm. But, but when I was living in New York uh, and working at Carnegie Corporation of New York, I used to walk to work every morning and I would walk through Central Park and then up Fifth Avenue to the office. And I had plenty of time to sort of think about things <laughs> while I was walking. And mm -hmm. it occurred to me that when I was a college student, I had been sent to Germany for a year. And I spent half of the year working in Germany and then the other half at a German university in Tübingen in South of Germany. And that I, when I had gone to Tübingen, I remembered then that I had to go to the police department and register uh, as a foreigner in order to be able to stay there for the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. So it occurred to me, now wait a minute, Thomas was a foreigner at this school, which was certainly unusual. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he must have had to register or do something. Mm -hmm. So I wrote back to the archivist in Amiens <coughs> and asked, uh, for that person to explore the police records. Hmm. And after a while, I got back a report and said, well, you might find this hard to believe, but we went into the basement of the police department where all the old things are stored. And we found a box labeled College of Amiens. No way. <laughs> and when we opened it up, there was a packet in there wrapped up in a yellow ribbon with a tag on it that said simply, Le Jeune Fallon. No. The Little Fallon. And <clears throat> so when you open this thing up, you discover a huge document, which I later traveled to Amiens and took a photograph of, which was a document from the Minister of the Interior, very close to the King, <clears throat> responding to a letter that had been sent from the governor of the Department La Somme, which is the province in which Amiens was located, in which this minister says, you know, given the circumstances that you described in your letter to me about the fact that there is a boy in that school who has been under the sponsorship of Monsieur le Vicomte Chateaubriand. And he spells out the whole thing and underlines. It's, not, it's the only underlined thing in the letter. 
and that Chateaubriand, given his circumstances, is unable to continue his sponsorship of the boy. Uh, I felt it my duty to go to the king and recommend that the king give him a royal scholarship. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the king has agreed to this. And so you may inform the boy that uh, he will be supported for the rest of his studies, another three years, uh, with uh, full support for tuition, books, and incidental expenses such as clothing and other things that he may need. Wow. Uh, and then I was working at the time also with the foremost Chateaubriand scholar in France, who was, uh, he just knocked out of his socks by this information. I'm sure. <laughs> and so he said he would, uh, he would go back to the Royal Archives and try to find what he could on the other side, on the King's wow. records. And he discovered that in fact, the King had given scholarships to over 20 young boys. Hmm. Uh, and the reason for this was that many of these the parents of these boys were royalists who had supported the throne at the time of the revolution, but were now destitute because all of their belongings and funds had been taken by sure. revolutionaries. And so the king had supported these boys for their education as a way of insisting that, that they, for the, the rewarding them for their loyalty to the throne. Wow. And of all of these boys, only one was a foreigner. Of all of these boys, only one was not mentioned by anything other than his last name, Le Jeune Felon. <laughs> and so it was unusual in every conceivable way uh, it's, that it's, the king would support this boy. <laughs> it's such a fascinating, I mean, the whole thing is so fascinating. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. You think of just simple acts in your daily life. All of this just started from a young girl noticing a man who didn't right. look well and handing and trying to feed him. It's, yes, it's so incredible. And then for what Chateaubriand would, would continue on to be known for and, and to do, it's um, the whole story just absolutely fascinates me. Um, I am a, I'm a Francophile. I love French stuff in general. So I just, I'm, I'm just blown away by this story. I actually was in France not too long ago and drove by, uh, we drove through the region and, and saw all the signs for Saint-Malo. And that made me think of this because you mentioned Saint-Malo several times and, and the, 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 the celebration that they do there and all of that stuff. So I just, I, I love this whole, this whole story. And I'm, it's exciting to talk to someone who has done such extensive research research to pull forth this just like fascinating piece of history that had you not wanted to dig in and had you not had these seemingly random experiences like your experience with in Germany that led you to ask that question you know that these pieces wouldn't have come together so it's it's incredible um yeah. well let me just say a few things Alex about the whole business of publishing a book Yes. And, um, <laughs> you know, why, why would I want to write this down and publish it as a book? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that was scholarly, really. Yes. That, that this contains information about Chateaubriand that was unknown to anybody. Yes. And it's extremely important to get it out. But uh, the book, and so the book is basically a work of academic scholarship. But as you can see uh, from reading it, that uh, it's much more than that. Right. And it's narrated in the first person. Yes. And so it's a memoir. 
and uh, in addition to being a work of academic scholarship, and it's also a love story. Yes. And it's also um, a, a genealogical investigation. Yes. And I mean, it's all kinds of things, and uh, therefore it does not fit a standard genre. And if you're trying to market a book, the first question they ask you is, what's the genre? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't answer that question. I mean, I have to say, well, there's, there are six possible genres, yes. <laughs> um, but there's no one genre. So, you know, I did start out by uh, offering the manuscript to academic presses. I got lots of uh, positive responses, but people said, you know, uh, this thing is, it's not a, long, not a very big book. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it, it doesn't really fit the standard genre. And so we don't feel like we can really take a risk on it. And I went to a number of, of agents and independent publishers and to, you know, the regular big deal publishers. And I got lots of compliments, mm -hmm. but nobody was willing to take a risk on this book, given the nature of the publishing world and, right. and everything else associated with that. And I was determined that I had to get it out. I mean, it had to be out there in the public domain somewhere. And um, so it then I then felt like I had to go down that difficult road <laughs> of doing it on my own. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to find a person here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I live, a woman named Ellen Kleiner, who runs a service called Blessing Way Authors Services. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's a woman who in the 1960s and 70s, worked in Manhattan in the book business. And so she knows her way around all of this stuff. And uh, she has numerous contacts. And it actually was through her that I ultimately ended up uh, being put into touch with you. Uh, so, uh, and she was very helpful to me in, in guiding me through this process which cost me, I should say, a substantial amount of money. I'm sure. <laughs> when you're publishing your own book, first of all, you have to create a publishing company. Yeah. You know, there has to be a publisher. People will not, you can't distribute a book without a publisher. Right. So I had to create my own limited liability corporation. And uh, it's called Amazonas Publishing. And it so far has published one book. <laughs> That's this book. I, I want to pause there for just a second, sure. because for many of you who are listening and might think to yourself, well, that's not true. I published my book on Amazon without having to do all that stuff. Well, you took a different route. Like you took, you took a, you have traditional distribution. Your book is going out through a, um, a, a distributing company. You took, created the publishing house and ran a print run. So um, he's not describing just your average, ordinary self-publishing print-on-demand route here. <laughs> and, and the quality of the book shows it. I mean, it, it's, it's, I'm sure your background in academia and all of these things had a had a big um, impact on how professional all of this stuff is, I would guess. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been very encouraged, Alexa, by uh, the fact that I've gotten some very, very positive reviews independently yes, of focus out. Uh, a really nice review from Book Life, which is uh, you know a, a, an affiliate of Publishers Weekly. Yes. Uh, and, um, you know, which gave it an A grade on all of the dimensions that they evaluate a book on. Mm -hmm. And uh, two wonderful books, uh, reviews from Goodreads, from not from Goodreads, from uh, Reader's Favorite. Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, and then in Goodreads, um, I decided to do a, uh, to offer a giveaway of the book. And, um, and that attracted 1300 entrants. Wow, that's great. And uh, 10 winners. And so I sent the book to these 10 people with a personal note in each book, signed each book, and then gave them each personal note. And then 1,200 of these 1,300 entrants put it on there, I want to read this book list mm -hmm. for when the book comes out. So, um, you know, I'm feeling encouraged by it. There are going to be some people who will be disappointed by it and may not like it for one reason or another. Um, I had one reviewer uh, recently uh, who felt, who gave it a positive review, but she sort of, there was kind of like a hidden message there that she felt a bit snookered because she thought she was getting a love romance. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I tell you what, you know, it, the, I will say the cover, when you're looking at the cover, it does look like it would be more along the lines of, of a, romantic, a romance story, even a fiction book. But your description is, is very clear, I think, about about the fact that it's a biography that you're, you know, investigating this story. It's also a memoir with your discoveries. Um, so, but it's, it's super interesting. I mean, we've talked around this and you mentioned it and I mentioned it and we've all mentioned it, but like the fact that it is all these different elements combined of genealogy, of history, of research, of all of these things and, and writing it in the first person and doing all these things. Like, I've, I don't think that I've ever seen a book quite like this. And sometimes they say that's a bad thing, but I really don't think that's a bad thing in this case. It's, it's, um, it's very unique and, and very, very interesting, like to, to read a, a history book for, for, you know, all intents and purposes that pulls you in, in this manner. It's yes. highly unusual. Um, so, you know, and, and just on the reviews thing, you always have people who don't like what you do. So that's, that's tough, but you've had such, I mean, great reviews from other professors, from the uh, professors of French and um, literature and language. And you've got a wonderful review from Amy Schwartz of the Washington Post. You've got just oodles of fantastic views and blurbs. And considering your book hasn't even published yet, um, it's, it's fantastic. How did you go about securing all of these? The professors, I'm sure you probably knew through through. Yeah, some of them I knew, um, but but I I didn't um, I didn't uh, cue them up in any particular way. Right. Uh, they, uh, for example, Joe Golson, who's a distinguished professor of French literature, uh, is somebody uh, who I knew forty years ago when I was a, a dean uh, at uh, a liberal arts at Texas A and M University, and I hired him. <laughs> And uh, so, and I, and he, uh, at that time, I had discussed roughly that I had this project in mind, but I hadn't done anything on it yet. So I wrote him and asked him, would you like to look at the manuscript? And he then responded with this uh, review, which, which is, um, you know, entirely his work and has nothing to do with me. Yeah. Uh, then there is a review by Tom Connor, who's a very uh, noted Chateaubriand scholar. And I never, I have never met Tom Connor. Mm -hmm. I don't know him at all. But I have read his books on Chateaubriand. And so I wrote him and I said, as a Chateaubriand scholar, would you be willing to look at this manuscript and you know, give me a, a blurb? So that's an example. Mm -hmm. uh, these were people that, uh, that I had sort of um, run across, but I, I hadn't actually, you know, in one way or another, 
said to them, I need, I need a positive review. Give me one. Right. And um, at what point in time did you start that process of, of finding reviewers, finding editorial reviewers, finding people to give the blurbs? I think when I had the uh, sort of penultimate manuscript, you know, a manuscript constantly changes right up mm -hmm. to the time that you send it to the printer, <laughs> you know, because you're constantly adding things, whether they're sentences or paragraphs or, or changing the, the structure of a sentence. Uh, but when I felt like I had a story that was coherent, that was when I sent it out to these people for initial review. And then um, when I finally got the thing done, um, we did have a book designer here in Santa Fe that Ellen Kleiner was used to working with, and she was was helping with uh, choosing the the uh, the kind of paper that we used and uh, and the um, the structure of how the book itself was going to look, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I had the artwork done actually by a cousin of mine mm -hmm. who had heard the oral history. She knew the oral history, yeah, um, but she only knew it kind of very vaguely and generally. And then when she read when she read the manuscript, she sat down and she and she did this beautiful beautiful cover. It is a gorgeous cover. And there are lots of subtleties in it. Uh, for example, you can look across the water. Mm -hmm. It has a it has a, the girl approaching the Frenchman under a tree, which in fact actually happened. And then there is uh, something which in Kensington Gardens in London is called the Long Water. But you can also think of that as the ocean or the English Channel. And just beyond it, there are some buildings. It turns out that those buildings are a perfect rendering of the College Amiens, the Royal Amiens, where Thomas went to school. Nice. So there, there's just a lot of stuff in there that talks about various episodes within the book and yeah, did occur there. No, it's it's a fantastic cover. And um, for those of you who can't see it, it's it's uh, it's it's illustrated. It's a it's a piece of art. It's not a it's not a, a photo or anything. And it's just it's really beautiful. I encourage you to go look it up on Amazon just so you can see this amazing cover. Love's Legacy by Daniel Fallon. Um, you know, so your book um, will probably air this episode about the time that, it, that it's launching so that people can can go out and get it right in that time frame. But um, what I just want to know what you are most excited about with finally getting this book out there. Well, I'm excited by, um, by the reaction that people might get and by, uh, I suppose, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. And so I spent my, my life working with students. And so I'm hoping that there are people who'll be inspired by this yeah. and will um, think twice about Chateaubriand. Most, most Americans, if they've ever heard about Chateaubriand, it's in conjunction with a steak recipe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly. They don't know who this guy is. So the idea that there are people who will discover this uh, in that way uh, is what's exciting to me. I mean, that's yeah. the most exciting thing to me is that is the discovery. I'll just in this book life review, I'll just give you at the very end, they have something called a takeaway. Mm -hmm. And she writes here simply, or whoever it is that it was this reviewer, writes a lively dive into French history, family legend, and a storied lover and writer's possible secret. That's and, it. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful review. Um, I mean, it's it, it's it's exciting to me. I am I am a 
uh, a francophile like i've said i love france i love french history i love european history i love history um and for me it's exciting to to see this type of of just research come out into such an interesting story and um you know we won't tell anybody what you ever found out about who the father was or any of those, you know, whether or not indeed your relative was his son uh, or not. But, um, you know, it just, I'm just fascinated. I've been fascinated by the concept since the time we hopped on the phone and just had a discussion about it. So I'm, I'm really excited to come out uh, to see this come out. And, um, and I just, I wish you the best of success. I hope that it opens people up, like you said, to a part of history and a, and a person of history that they weren't familiar with. Yeah. Well, it is fascinating. And, and you'll notice that in the book, there is a 16 page insert with uh, uh, pictures. Yes, I, I forgot to mention that, but they're, they're beautiful and in color as and well. So. so there's a portrait of Chateaubriand for people who want to know who this guy was. He was a very noted lover. I mean, there isn't any <laughs> doubt about that. And they, there are at least, you know, a dozen women who, um, who acknowledged uh, his presence in their lives. And um, so, uh, you know, it's fascinating. The whole thing is fascinating from top to bottom. Oh, it is. It is. I, I love it. And, and even the pictures of the, of the recreated letters that you have. It's just, it's wonderful. This is a true, um, a true piece of art. I mean, just it just really, really is. I highly recommend it to anybody listening. If this topic sounds of interest to you, I'm I'm excited to go. I went through it quickly because I wanted to have read enough to be able to talk to you, but I'm excited to go back and read it more carefully and and really take in all the details of the story. And um, yeah, I'm excited for you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for I'm being. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much for for being uh, on the show. And again, if you missed it, when I said it a minute ago, Love's Legacy, uh, The Viscount Chateaubriand and The Irish Girl by Daniel Fallon. Go get it anywhere books are sold because it should be available everywhere on October 5th. And is it available only in hardcover or do you have paperback as well? No, there's, there's, it's a no, the paperback, uh, paperback and audiobook. I thought I would hold off to see if the book sells. And if it does sell, I'll do the paperback and audiobook. But it's also available as an ebook. Wonderful. So you can, get, you can get it as Kindle or Nook or any of these other uh, ebook uh, outlets. Well, great. Well, best of luck to you. And thank you for coming on the show. You're quite welcome, Alexa. It's nice talking with you. You too. Thank you for joining us on the Publisher Podcast. We hope to see you back for the next episode. Great, huge thanks goes to Jasmine Commerce for the use of her song. You can find Jasmine on SoundCloud. Go check out all of her music. We'll see you next time. You can say-